0: I really want to say hi. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no. No, no, I'm not going to say hi. (laughs) You don't deserve my (laughs) hi. Welcome to the Alternative Format Podcast, hosted by Anuja Pradhan and
1: Scott Jones.
0: This is a podcast where we discuss doing the PhD by Alternative Format. in this episode we hear about the supervisor's perspective on doing a phd by alternative format
1: so we're going to discuss who might be suited to this kind of phd we're going to look at the skills needed by the supervising team thinking about writing feedback networking writing for different audiences we're going to have a look at the. Alternative format as a series of contributions, and we're also going to have a think about institutions and the way they've styled these PhDs by alternative formats, and some scepticism around it, as well as the benefits from taking this approach.
0: We thought it might be useful to have this other perspective, uh, so that students can hear from those who have experience in supervising PhDs in general, but also particularly PhDs by alternative format and also examining these PhDs, right Scott?
1: Absolutely, yep. So we're talking to three supervisors, Professor Emerita Margaret Hogg at Lancaster University, Professor Marie Piercentini at Lancaster University, and Professor Fenola Kerrigan at the University of Birmingham.
0: They were really kind and gave us their time. So thank you so much for that, uh, professors. And maybe we can begin first by hearing Finola discuss who might be best suited for the PhD by alternative format.
2: I think that if you're really um, careerist, yeah, <laughs> uh, if you're very careerist in a very narrow understanding of what an academic career is, and you think the most important thing in life is to publish in certain journals, and then that's it. Yeah. Then maybe, maybe it's good for you, right? If because that's the thing you focus on. That is it. How to crack this journal, how to write in the style for that journal. That's it. But I think you might if that's if you're really early and you haven't had exposure to the wider academic field and stuff at that point, I think you can become blinkered in terms of what our job is and how you evolve as a researcher and how you find your place and all that kind of i mean hippy dippy yeah. kind of stuff that i appreciate a lot so i think that's that's the danger
1: i think finola raises some really interesting points around perhaps the instrumentality of doing a phd by alternative format and there's this almost inescapable truth that there might be some need to publish you know we're entering most candidates are going to probably into an academic career, the need to publish articles or start developing the skills to publish articles.
0: Absolutely. I think we discussed this a little bit in the first episode, uh, but Finola was kind enough to give us the most sort of pragmatic answer. We also asked her to be a bit more sceptical or, um, I don't know, to situate this within, you know, wider academia and what is expected from new PhD candidates, and uh, she was kind enough to give us a very honest answer.
1: Absolutely, and and listening to Fanola, it made me think about, um, I, I reflected about what I did, like I thought this is a really innovative approach to doing a PhD, but equally I thought it may reduce, it's pragmatic as well, I was hoping to get publications, hoping to think about my future career, and perhaps how do I reduce the anxiety and stress around that?
0: Finola also makes a good point towards the end about, you know, sometimes you may develop blinkers almost. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about another potential, not, not issue, but something you might miss out on if you do a PhD by this format, which is actually getting the opportunity to write a book. Yeah, Because in the marketing or the management discipline, um, a lot of times articles are considered to... Um, I don't know. Be more important for your promotion criteria for your you know yearly evaluation. So if you don't write that book during your PhD, when are you really going to write it?
1: Yeah, we're still a little envious, aren't we? Anuja? A little bit, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this isn't a solo journey. We've emphasised in earlier episodes about the skills and the need for to collaborate and work with supervisors. So we're going to hear from Maria Piercentini, who's going to tell us a little bit about the skills needed by the supervisors.
3: There is something about communication because you need to be open, adaptable and able to communicate really clearly in both the written and spoken word. So I've talked a lot about how so much goes on in the meetings so much goes on behind the scenes doesn't it in terms of the conversations etc the defending ideas developing ideas and i think there's so many elements to this is about thinking about expectations but revisiting them so really having good communications that you can go back and forth and go remember we talked about this is this still the case do we still feel this we still you know um and then when the writing comes in you know ultimately the PhD supervisor is training somebody else to be an independent researcher, and so writing is a really big part of that. But it's about the independent. It's about Scott's writing, not Maria's writing or James's writing. So it's how do you, how do we help Scott develop his own writing style that's his and not ours? Um, and it's trying to think about how we communicate in a way that works for the student and provides the adequate space for the supervisor to guide the process, contribute. And I think, I talked already about adaptability. For the PhD by publication, you need to be really adaptable. Everybody, everybody there's there's no room for, you have, if somebody knows that they just really like a fixed way of doing things and on a fixed plan, this probably won't work for them.
1: Yeah, some super points there by Maria. I really like this idea of, and we talked about it earlier, I think Anuja, in an earlier episode about this idea of it not it being flexible and the guidelines also being a little bit flexible, like to include perhaps a methods chapter or in, include an extra paper or, or an alternative format. But this idea that I think Anuja and I's story, we didn't set out knowing we had these three paper journey, but through that dialogue and support with supervisors, developing that.
0: And uh, Maria's point about communication was also really excellent. You you know, you need to have good communication with your supervisors, regardless of which way you're doing your PhD. But I think you need a slightly different style of communication when it comes to this type of PhD, because you're also co-authors at this point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Murray mentioned the meetings that you have as well and the opportunity to discuss ideas and build trust, I think, is really important as well. And we're going to hear now from Finola Kerrigan, who's also going to talk about the skills that supervisors need.
2: I suppose when you're doing your PhD anyway, like your supervisor should be thinking about, well, where could this end up and, you know, whatever. But if you're doing by publication, you don't have any time to waste you can't say, well, let me try this one. And if they don't like it, we will redo it and we'll try that one. And that," because you're just out of time. So they have to kind of be very clear from the beginning with you.
1: Again, some really good points by Finola. I think um, speaking from experience, the idea of thinking about where, where might this work land? What journals are we thinking of targeting? How do we join the conversation of those journals? You know, where is the fit? And... In my, perhaps, an own naive experience at the start of the journey, I, I wasn't too sure, but again, working with the experience of the supervisors, guiding, discussing as well, and having your own input and authority to say, I think it would really fit in this particular article or this journal outlet is really important.
0: And as Fanola said, it's really helpful if the supervisor has had experience of publishing in that journal, right? because they can help you then really decide whether this is a good fit or not a good fit. Um, and particularly when you have a shorter time frame sometimes to work with that can be quite essential along with of course other essential skills like writing feedback networking and uh, margaret tells us a little bit about this next and just so you're aware the audio quality coming up isn't great
3: I think there are two things you, that you're after your, your students doing. First of all, baby steps in terms of writing. So you, first of all, you do a conference, get some feedback, learn how to deal with the feedback, both mentally and emotionally, as well as you know, what you're writing. But the other part of the thing that you're really encouraging your students to do is go out into the field and start developing their networks
1: yeah really important points raised by Margaret there we talked again Margaret mentions baby steps and we talked about that's exactly right I remember doing a a social sciences conference at Lancaster University that was my first one and it felt like a massive deal and it was a big deal and then I had the confidence to go for another conference and I think
0: we did that together Scott I just realized
1: yeah I think that was our first one together our first conference And I think Margaret makes a really interesting point about emotional resilience and mental resilience as well. I remember when I first uh, sent off an article and it came back with these revisions, I I was genuinely thrilled to have it uh, reach the revision stage. But equally, my goodness, you're looking at it and thinking, how can I tackle this? And it does feel overwhelming.
0: It really does. And um, I don't know about you, Scott, but I generally... Once I get the reviews, I try not to look at them immediately. I just try to first enjoy this idea that you've gotten into yeah. that first round.
1: I agree. I do the same.
0: Right. Because then I'm like, oh my God, I have to look at the reviews and then I have to spend some time crying about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no. Yeah. So, so, Margaret's point about um, dealing with these things emotionally is important and kind of. Preparing your students for that as well, I think, in terms of, you know, the supervisor's role is quite essential here.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And an important role in that is thinking about the audiences that we're going to write for. And Margaret's going to tell us a little bit more about that.
3: It's about writing the story which is such an important part of the whole process. You've got to learn to write a story and you've got to learn to understand your audience. So that's the other side. Because if you can't understand your audience, you're not going to write your story appropriately. So in a way the, to do the three sets of writings actually really, really, really valuable in terms of the sets of skills you'll
0: then need to pick on later on. This is a very great point, And it was particularly relevant for my research because Two of my papers were targeted towards um, consumer research journals, but the third one was for a sociology journal. So the writing for that third journal was really, really different because it was a different audience and just the style of writing as well, right? So um, for a sociology paper, for example, I I wrote slightly more in the methods, right? Um, And then the way in which I showed the data analysis was a little bit different. I put in a bit more in the context as well. So it, it was a useful experience for sure because it helped me learn to write a different way. So Margaret is very correct about this point of, you have different audiences and you need to keep that in mind.
1: Yeah, I share a similar story where I um, had three papers at kind of marketing, had two papers at marketing theory who are quite, crit, you know, critical marketers. And then I write for another journal where it's very managerial, let's say. And all of a sudden I'm an academic and I'm having to write these managerial implications. <laughs> what does this mean for business and how does business, what does your theory uh, mean for for Netflix or these other binge companies, so it was really yeah, it's a totally different approach to writing, and writing to that, uh, writing and joining that conversation of that journal, I think is really important. Maria is going to tell us about the contributions, how the alternative format, and we talked in I think an earlier episode about how it's a series of contributions, and Maria is going to elaborate a little bit more on that for us.
3: That is a new challenge for everybody involved because right from the starting point of thinking about papers you're thinking what is the contribution going to be of this this paper that we're producing now i know one could say well that's always the case when you do a literature review when you do a literature review you'd have a driving question you'd be saying what do we not know and what is my literature review going to reveal about what we don't know which starts to form the basis of the contribution but it is it sharpens your thinking for sure about contribution what it is to make a contribution, how it appears, and the size of the contribution as well. So I think that is something that each article or paper, however you want to call it, has to have a clear and distinct contribution that makes them suitable for publication, which is the main point of distinction with traditional PhD, which has a holistic contribution.
0: I don't know about you, Scott, but I actually found this um, a little bit challenging because there were times when I would confuse uh, the papers or kind of, you know, what was I writing and make those really clear-cut distinctions between the three papers because it was still an interconnected story. So sometimes also just carving out, or not, well, not carving out, but finding those um, distinct contributions can be a little bit challenging. But again, I had my supervisors to help me with that, so that was great.
1: No, I agree, Anuja, completely is a challenge, especially because you're keeping this thread amongst the papers that shows the kind of linear journey. And Maria mentioned about these uh, holistic, uh, overarching contributions, and that is something Anuja and I, we both did in our conclusion chapter, and that is uh, apparent in most alternative format PhDs. And I think we talked earlier, it's a real challenge again, isn't it, to then raise your contributions to this kind of, uh, holistic or a grand level, if you like.
0: Definitely. And I think we're, again, circling that theme about how um, this is also a challenging format, so it's not an easier route. We mm. discussed this earlier. Um, but this format also has certain implications for institutions and academia. And Finola tells us a little bit about that next.
2: So this kind of unit of measure of like, what do we get from a PhD, which is really narrow? I think one way that people might solve that problem is go, oh, yeah, but we get these by publication and you, you know, you get these outputs that can go in the ref and they're co-authored. And and if they're co-authored with the supervisor, you don't even need to give the student a job afterwards because you've got it, you know. So I do think that there, if it's not done properly, it can be, you know, it can be a little bit abusive,
0: Just for international listeners who might not be familiar, uh, REF is this research excellence framework which has been guiding the way that uh, a lot of UK universities are managing themselves and their people. Maybe, Scott, you can elaborate.
1: Yes, thanks Yeah, so the REF framework is typically um, institutions are, are judged or guided in terms of their reach, research output by the REF framework and you'll hear in academia is your work referable? Um and when the institution does its own kind of REF framework and what it submits to the REF it, needs, it thinks about that and Fanona talks about this idea of moving towards the alternative format and maybe some kind of institutional, some scepticism around institutions doing that and in thinking about it and reflecting for this podcast I was thinking myself you know it was a very pragmatic way of doing it and I was at a stage in my career where I was thinking about where I wanted to go what institutions I wanted to work for what identity I wanted as an academic and the alternative format it was I I, I almost became an efficient unit of labour if you like an efficient unit of labour producing goods in a very neoliberal kind of perspective but I also must say it suited me as well at that point in my career.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at it extremely critically, um, as Finola has done. Also, I want to say because we asked her to. <laughs> yeah. um, she also supports this format, yeah. uh, but we asked her specifically to be critical. So she's done that. Um but yeah, taking that perspective, it does sometimes make you wonder whether you are feeding into the system that's already trying to take advantage of you in some way or the other. Um, I don't know, I was just left with that question.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, it's, it's a question, isn't it? I know.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about this a little bit. We don't, we don't have a conclusion, but maybe the listeners will also be thinking about it. Um, what I was thinking was, you know, Everybody's selling their soul. You have to <laughs> a little bit. So it's like some people are working for Monsanto and other people are working for Disney yeah. or Apple. You know, you're just doing it differently, which is an extremely cynical way to think about it now. Um. So, so let's continue this sort of scepticism with the next little soundbite from Maria. Some of the scepticism might be
3: linked to that idea of supervisors being seen to take advantage of students, Right. You could counter that with well writing with a student has always been there, and it's always been a thing, so that's the kind of thing, but I think it's um I think it's dissolving or it's definitely shifting and it's def- i mean i think I think my only count- counter to the skepticism is just like not to embrace it too wholeheartedly
1: so again a really interesting point. We are seeing more PhDs by alternative format, and we are, and scepticism, and rightly so, we'll continue to foster around that. But Maria mentioned the you know, the inescapable truth, really, that most candidates now, if you go for a job, um, assistant professor job or a lecturer, you will probably see that they want a PhD, maybe with a paper in development or a paper. Whether that is right or wrong, that is the system we're moving to.
0: Yeah, so so while there is that scepticism, this is also a very pragmatic decision that I think we have to make. And um, there are some benefits to making this decision, right? So Maria talks a little bit about that next.
3: One of the big benefits of doing it is job market readiness. Yeah. You know, well, there's lots of benefits, you know, developing skills of writing, argument development early on, the focus, etc., But being ready for the job market is really important. It's a huge benefit. And because we don't really have research assistant model and postdocs in our field, then this is a way for people to be ready to go out there and get a job. So I think that's the reason why it's going to be popular.
1: Yeah, job market readiness. So, the idea of you might have publications in the pipeline or out of your thesis, there might be publications there if you to publish. Or, in my case, I'd published a couple along the way. And I think in the first episode, I mentioned I was already working in academia. So, why did I do it this way then? Partly was to think about career progression, uh, moving to other institutions, perhaps more research focused. But Maria mentions job readiness there. And we talked a little bit earlier as well about. When you get a job, it is quite different, isn't it? uh, And Maria recognises that, obviously. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, yeah?
0: No, I I don't know. I was just thinking about this conversation we had with Maria about uh, how while this format of the PhD trains you towards certain aspects of the job, right? But but still, I think overall, the PhD programmes that we have don't a lot of times train you sufficiently for what's coming up next unless you've had that experience in academia, right? Unless you've been lecturing in academia previously. So uh, you go from, you know, not having done either any teaching or like maybe taking some tutorials because in a lot of UK universities, if you don't have a PhD, you can't do entire lectures, so so you go from doing these one-hour tutorials to now you're expected to give two- to three-hour lectures, You know, make a lecture plan, be responsible for an entire course, and yeah. um, you're Pla- just not trained in that.
1: No, plan, deliver, a whole module, uh, mentor new staff, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's important at these times to try to find some opportunities maybe to get this experience. So I want to go back to a point that Margaret made earlier about networking, right? So she spoke about the importance of networking and um, we should also acknowledge that networking is a privilege because you you need to be able to travel a lot of times in order to network and uh, PhDs are already so sort of financially constrained constrained, that it becomes difficult for them. But if you do have the opportunity to network, um, you should take it, you know, talk to people so you develop new ideas, um, I don't know, get to know new people. But also because I networked, I was invited to do a guest lecture at the University of Southern Denmark while I was doing my PhD. I was invited two years in a row, actually, to guest lecture on um, one or two of their courses. And this really helped because this was the only lecturing experience that I got during my PhD. But it was nice to have that in the bank.
1: Oh, fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. Networking is important. And Marie is going to tell us about the the way forward, the implications for PhD programs through the alternative format.
3: So currently, PhD programmes might do, you know, you have your your first year, you do your literature review and you do your, whatever your courses might be that your university thinks are needed for your doctoral training. And it may be that we have to really think about, well, how do we prepare students better to be able to identify and write literature reviews that are publishable and all that type of thing. So so we probably have to think about um, how those programmes are set up and what elements need to be there. Um, and also thinking about what people are bringing in, what our requirements are as people come. You know, Currently, it might be an MA or an MSC equivalent. Do we want to see a stronger research component? Do we want MRes? You know, we want to make sure we don't shoot ourselves in the foot here, though, in terms of the requirements, and BAR being so high to go onto a programme like this. So it's, it's tricky. I think there's a lot of... We're, we're still trying to probably settle into what this model will look like and what the support needs are.
0: Maria's right. It has all these implications for structuring PhD programs going ahead.
1: Yeah, thinking about the research. Maria mentions maybe the research modules that you'll take, what's required, the the actual requirements to get onto a program maybe need to be reconsidered. Yeah, she raises some really interesting points about the university's kind of infrastructure and its for going ahead with this alternative format and that was part of our kind of uh, inspiration for this podcast wasn't it it uh, to just raise awareness just to have these discussions and um, hopefully discussions that colleagues and supervisors and doctoral students uh, can have too
0: absolutely i think we need a lot more institutional support as it were right when it comes to doing um this type of phd and and we were hoping that well you know this could be another resource for support for our listeners and hopefully they found this episode useful or helpful
1: so we'd like to thank uh, Professor Margaret Hogg, Professor Marie P- Piercentini and Professor Finola Kerrigan for their um, time, their energy, their enthusiasm. And their kindness um, for giving us um, their thoughts sort of around the alternative format. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Okay, we'll, we'll see you next time on the next episode where we are going to look at the viva and the post-PhD journey. So in the next episode, we'll talk about how did we prepare for the viva? How did we um, make sure we had examiners or the correct examiners or the right examiners? We're going to have a look at how our vivas went themselves. And we're going to have a look at the post-PhD journey after the Viva. Thank you for listening to the Alternative Format podcast. This podcast is produced by Carsten Prince and is a collaboration between the University of Southern Denmark and the University of Birmingham and supported by the Marketing Trust UK. Thank you for listening and happy writing.